Hello friends, we have a different kind of midweek happening today. I want to talk about the Trinity. Uh, the last sermon I did, um, I felt like I botched a description of the Trinity, so I want to take a bit of time and do a better job of talking about it here. And so we in the West, we don't necessarily think about the Trinity much as Christians because we don't always wrestle with the intellectual side of our faith as much as um, the church has in the past or um, missionaries in other parts of the world have to. For us, it seems like not always the biggest hurdle to say, you know, the Father is God and Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And we maybe don't even think about it too deeply because of that. However, if you're a missionary in a Muslim country, to say the idea that uh, Jesus is God or that he was incarnate and that God the Father had a son can be a huge stumbling block for Muslims to even hear, let alone to overcome, to become um, a believer in Jesus. And so I just want to take some time to talk about the Trinity and to explain from Scripture where I see it and then to talk about why I am so grateful for it. And I believe it's a deeply worshipful uh, truth about God to, to know. Ultimately, this is a mystery. We're talking about God's very nature, and so we can only go so far into understanding what we're talking about because God's revealed it to us, but we can't ever kind of master this because we're talking about God's inner nature, and so we can only really understand things from a human's perspective, which means because we're people, we're created by God to understand him, so we can understand him truly, but we won't ever completely master these realities as something that we can know everything about because this is God, and we just can understand him by what he reveals to us. So what does the Trinity mean? The Trinity it just means uh, three in one. It's not a Bible word. It's a word that uh, came up hundreds of years or a couple hundred years after the life of Christ as people were trying to um, describe the truth of Scripture that describes God as well as to solve a riddle. And the riddle is this. Um, what do you do with Jesus? He was a man. He is a man. And yet he's worshipped by Christians. And he's not the Father. So what do you do with him? And uh, for a while after Jesus was born, um, there the church really had to wrestle with some teaching that Jesus was um, just a creature, the best creature, the first creature, the greatest creature, but he wasn't truly God. And so the church had to wrestle with this because if Jesus is a creature and not truly God, then you shouldn't worship him. It would be idolatry to worship him. You can give thanks to him and honor him, but you can't actually bow before him and say, you are my God. But the church did. The church does worship Jesus as God, very God. And so the Trinity is a term that just means three in one, and it's meant to describe the reality that there is only one true God, and that one true God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are uh, persons who relate to the other persons of the Trinity, and yet they are one life and one energy and one purpose, as Jay Packer says. Um, and so I just want to talk through some scriptures that give us that tension of the unity of God as well as the tri trinity of God, as and then where the word of God actually leads us and compels us to have these ideas of the trinity. 
So some ideas about the unity of God. So when Moses was leading Israel out of Egypt, and as you remember, Egypt was a polytheistic nation. They had gods for everything. Gods for the sun, gods for the moon, gods for the river. The Nile was a god, gods for frogs, all this stuff. And the, even the, the ten plagues were Yahweh, the god of the Israelites, defeating the Egyptian gods by proving that he had power over these things that they said they had their own gods for. And they worshipped as gods, but actually Yahweh came and completely overpowered them to prove that he is the one true God. And so when Moses led them out to the, the desert and gave them God's ten commandments, God's ten words, he starts off by this. And the Lord says through Moses in Exodus 20 verse 1 and following, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so when God is liberating his people, the first thing he says to them is that I, the Lord, am your God, and there's no other gods for you. And so this is the demand of monotheism. There's only one God, and he alone deserves worship. And God proved that he's the only God by defeating all the false gods and idols of Egypt. And his first demand of his people is that they should have an exclusive worshiping relationship with the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God. And this uh, this monotheism, this which it means just there's only one God, is picked up again in Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verse 4, and it's everywhere, but I'm just picking some specific verses. And Moses taught this main theological confession to Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and this is one of the main confessions of uh, Hebrew faith, where you say, it's called the Shema, Shema Yisrael, um, which in English is translated, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm going to try to remember that. I think it's Shema Yisrael, um, Adonai, um, Eloheinu, and Adonai Echad, which is Hebrew for, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And so here is this, again, command in Deuteronomy to be a monotheist, to believe there's only one God, the Lord is one. And to be completely devoted in all your worship to him. You shall love the Lord with all your God and with all your heart. So um, the true God came and rescued his people and commanded them to worship him alone to the exclusion of all other things that would, all other creatures or all other things that would claim to be God. So there's the beginning of reality. And this is the truth. And however, when Jesus comes, we are presented with this person this man who is more than a man and is even elevated to the status of God or not even elevated but is taught to be God and so and I'm going to show this a little bit and uh, one thing you can do is even just see the beginning of John 1 uh, the beginning of the Gospel of John. So John actually was a man who lived with Jesus, was one of his disciples, and when he wanted to sit down and teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit who Jesus was, he doesn't just say he was some guy and he died on the cross and was resurrected. He actually begins his Gospel by teaching us about the divinity of Jesus, that the godness of Jesus, that Jesus ought to be thought of as the one true God. And so in Genesis 1.1, um, scripture famously begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes through to talk about the creation and God overcoming the darkness by saying, let there be light and creating this world. Now, when John tells us about Jesus in John 1, he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. 
Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John, in his gospel, that where he's telling us about Jesus, teaching us about Jesus, teaching us what to think about Jesus, says, goes starts off with Genesis, where every Hebrew and everybody familiar with the scripture knows this is all about the one true God who rescued Egypt, sorry, rescued Israel out of Egypt, the one true God, creator of the universe, um, in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Now John is saying, actually, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So there's this person who is both the true living God, the God of Israel, as well as with the true living God. And John ascribes to this word the activities of the creator God, who he is both with and is. So he makes everything. And even this is a great verse in verse 3 here. For anybody who would think that Jesus is a creature, John actually says everything that was made, so all creatures were actually made through the word. So he didn't make himself and he wasn't made or else he would be something made. He would be a creature. So he's not a creature. He actually made all things, which presents him as the one true God. And yet he's with the one true God. And so John is beginning his gospel and he's going to explain very clearly that the word is Jesus. This, this man from Nazareth, this uh, relative of John the Baptist, this disciple maker, this miracle worker, this man who goes to the cross and is raised from the dead, he's the word who is with God and is God. And all the activity from Genesis that was is described to the one true God, the Lord, Jesus did that. And so you have this expansion of revelation about who God is and his nature in the New Testament, primarily focused on who the Christ is, but also including who the Spirit of God is. And so this really forced the, the church and Christians to spend a lot of time arguing about who Jesus is in relation to the Father and who the Holy Spirit is in relation to Jesus and the Father. And they rightly, I think, scripturally came down with the idea of the Trinity that all three persons of the Trinity are God, are equally God, and at the same time, they are the one true God. There is only one God, and that one God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And each of them is everything it means to be God. And so they said something to that effect. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but the church came to this, this conclusion that that was a faithful reading of Scripture that also guarded our worship of Jesus and the Holy Spirit as God, and that we're not idolaters for elevating them in our worship. So one of the things I love to see in scripture is places where the Bible holds together the three persons of the Trinity acting in unity as the one true God in the world in and in salvation. So this is what I mean. In Matthew 3.16, we have the story of Jesus' baptism. And let me read it for you. It says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So this is Jesus' baptism, but we actually see the one two, true God in action in, in the three persons, or the three persons of the one true God 
in action together, which demonstrates their uh, uniqueness as persons as well as their unity in purpose and in action. So Jesus is in the water and the spirit descends upon him and the father speaks from heaven and the father is speaking to the son thus he is not the son and the spirit is landing on the son thus he is not the son but they are together in this action of Jesus's baptism they are they are the one true god pulling off this baptism which is this event that god is doing so that Jesus is being revealed to the world as the one who's going to stand in the place of sinners um to rescue them. We also see this talking about the cross in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus's sacrifice and it says this, this is chapter 9 starting in verse 13. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, according to Old Testament laws, I added that last part in, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he's talking about the power of the cross, the power of Jesus' blood shed on the cross to actually transform our consciences, to purify us in God's sight and make us true servants of God. But he doesn't just talk about the blood. This is a Trinitarian event. What God did on the cross, it is Jesus the man shedding man blood on the cross but the power that enabled him to go to the cross was the eternal spirit of God and the one who received this sacrifice that purifies is God. He offered himself without blemish to God. So Jesus, his blood is going to God, the Father. Often in the New Testament letters when it talks about just God and it doesn't say anything else about it, it's talking about God the Father. So the man Christ Jesus is offering his blood through the power of the Holy Spirit to God the Father. And they're all, these persons are working together and they are the one true God, but they are doing unique roles in the act of purification through the blood of Christ. And then one more, and this is my favorite, probably just a short little Trinitarian blessing that the Apostle Paul whips up at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, the grace of the Lord Christ Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So you have Jesus and you have God and you have the Spirit all mentioned in this one blessing. So the one God is blessing the Corinthians through Paul's speech. And that blessing is going to be expressed through grace coming from the Lord Jesus Christ and love coming from God the Father and fellowship, so presence coming through the Holy Spirit. These three persons each doing the one blessing from scripture here. And it's also good to note that when you see the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how Paul often would lift up the godness of Christ is that that title of Lord um, is actually what the translation of God's name was from the Old Testament. So remember when you're talking about Exodus, it says, I'm the Lord, your God, that Lord that's often written with all capital letters is actually God's um, personal name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which means I am or he is. And so the, the New Testament writers take that personal name of the Lord that all of the Old Testament people would have heard as God's personal name and they apply that title to Jesus to say when you hear the name Lord in the Old Testament that is referring to Jesus Christ 
because Jesus is the one true God. And then again, like I said here, when it says the love of God, usually Paul, when he just says the name God, Theos in the Greek, he means God the Father. And sometimes he makes that more clear and sometimes he doesn't. And then here's the Holy Spirit again, who is treated as one of the three um, who are bringing God's blessing to the church. But this is a Trinitarian blessing. The Lord Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit. And they're all the one God doing one activity of blessing the church. So I want to keep just pushing into this a little bit here because you, you can see how this relationship is. And often a, a shorthand for how things work is it's like all things, the one true God does things from the Father. So he's like the originator of plans and uh, predestination and um, desire. And it's done through Jesus. So Jesus is the action taker and it's done by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does the power, Jesus does the work, God does the planning, God the Father does the planning. That's often the way it is, but not always. And you can read the scriptures for yourself and just kind of discover how God reveals himself in the Trinity. But um, I want to keep looking at some more Trinitarian verses here because we want to expand this thing. This is worshipful stuff. This is meant to build our confidence. When we talk to Jesus, we are talking to the one true God who created all things and rules over the earth. And because he was incarnate, so he took on flesh and became a man, he is just like us. So he's on team human. He's on team man. And so when we come to him, we come to one of our own. And at the same time, he is the one true God. And this is all meant to build our faith and to inspire worship. So at the beginning of Hebrews, it says this, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So talking about the Old Testament. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So this is a being that is greater than prophets, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. Wow, look at this person. There's this person who's this son who is inheriting everything, and he also created everything. What? Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more superior to angels as his name, the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we have in this introduction, like the first thing the author of Hebrews wants us to know, almost like John, is that I'm talking about this person who uh, went to the cross. He purified for sins. He, he was a man and died. He shed blood and is now seated at, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. But when I'm talking about him, I don't want you to think he's just a person. He's actually the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And that phrase, the exact imprint of his nature, um, some theologians, I think it was Jonathan Edwards, used to try to help understand how there could be a son from the father who is with God and is God. And what he suggested is, is that Jesus is God's known self coming out from God. Or um, when God the Father thinks about himself and and knows himself, his knowledge of himself is so complete that it is God himself. And so you can see here that when he talks about the radiance of glory and the imprint of his nature, these are kind of metaphors, but they're trying to say that God's self in the Father has come forth in completeness 
so that it is exactly God the Father himself as well. So everything that is true about God the Father is in the Son, and yet they're separate. How could this be? And John, Jonathan Edwards, I think it was him, suggested that God knowing himself was so, is such a complete knowing that everything that is true about God is true about what God knows about himself. Now, that's pushing the outer boundaries of how people can think, and so if that just sounds weird to you, you can leave it to it. But scripture does say that everything it means to be God radiates out of him like the shining of a sun. And the radiation, the outward shining um, of his nature is so complete that it is a son, that is everything it means to be able, like the father. All right. I hope your mind is blown there. At the same time, there is this Holy Spirit. And one of the best passages that talks about kind of God the Father's relationship to the Spirit, um, and it's not exclusive because the Spirit is the Spirit of the Son as well, but it comes from 1 Corinthians 12, and it's talking about God's hidden knowledge and hidden plan in the gospel. And it says this, starting in verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now this is one of the cooler passages explaining God's relationship to God the Spirit, and it talks about, uses the analogy of our own spirit, like, what's that part of you that can think about you? What's that part of you that can analyze? What's going on inside of me? How am I thinking? What am I feeling? What's going on inside of me? And he says, similarly, the spirit of God can search the depths of God and know everything that's going on inside God. And for me, it's like, what kind of being besides God himself could actually search out the depths of God? This is one of the things about God is God is inscrutable. We can't actually know the depths of God. We can't know anything about God unless God reveals it to us. We're, we're dependent on him to speak and to create and to reveal himself. But the Holy Spirit is able to search out all things, all of creation. He knows everything about creation. He searches out and he can even search out the depths of the Father because he's the Father's own spirit. So the Holy Spirit must be God in order to search out the depths of God, but he must also be distinct from God the Father in order to be a being, a person who is searching out a different person or another person. I don't know if difference is the right word, but you can see what's going on here. There's two beings and their relationship is so complete and united that they must be one being the same way I am one with my spirit. And yet you can talk about your spirit being separate from the body at death. And so by analogy that we're made somewhat similar to God, but God, the Holy Spirit is everything it means to be God or else he couldn't search out all the depths of God. And yet he is distinct from the father or else he couldn't actually search out the father. Does that make sense? And so, and other people have talked about how when we meet the Holy Spirit in action, he's he's described it as like being the love of God. Um, especially in Galatians, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first and prime thing about the Spirit is that he's love. And so other theologians have, have suggested that when God the Father beholds the Son, 
um, and God the Son beholds the Father, their relationship to each other. This relationship that is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control is so full and so complete as they love each other that it is God himself, God the Holy Spirit. The relationship of God the Father to God the Son is so full and complete that it is God. And it's a, a divine being. It's the divine being. And, it, and they're all interpenetrating. They're all one together. And yet there are distinct persons. And so, you know what, I've, I've pressed the exact boundaries of how, how much I can even think about this stuff without confusing myself. I've meant to say anything. I have not meant to say anything heretical. But just looking at how scripture talks about God, you can see that there's the tension between there's only one true God that is worthy of our worship and we're forbidden from worshiping anybody else. And we are presented with the man Christ Jesus who is given to us as the word who created all things and the exact imprint of God's nature as well as the Holy Spirit who has all the divine characteristics and divine power and um, even in the Gospel of John I don't know the reference right at the top of my head but do you remember when Thomas doubts that Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus appears to him and says, you know, touch my, my spear wound, touch the wounds of my hand. And Thomas bows down before Jesus and confesses, my Lord and my God. So he worships him and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus receives that worship. If Jesus isn't the one true God, then that was an act of sin. Jesus sinned by letting Thomas worship him. The angels don't let anybody worship them. Anytime they, they bow down to the angels, the angels like stop them. No, 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 no. So we have these facts of Jesus being treated as God and talked of as God. We have this fact of the Holy Spirit being treated as God and talked of as God. We have these facts of the Father and the Son and the Spirit being talked about as being united in purpose. And so Christians have come together and talked about the Trinity. The one God who is three persons, united in every single way, yet distinct in their three personhoods, each one worthy of worship and trust and faith, and whenever you're talking about any one of them, all three of them are united in what any one of them is doing. This is our God, worthy of trust, worthy of worship, who we will spend eternity with to the glory and praise of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And amen.